Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. jump in too much, I do also want to recognize that this weekend we not only celebrate Father's Day, we also celebrate Juneteenth. And if you're not familiar with Juneteenth, Juneteenth is the remembrance of the emancipation of African slaves as we think about one of the greatest injustices in the history of our country. And so we remember this with both sobriety, but also celebration. Uh, We remember this with the the reminder that while their freedom was received, we still see the ramifications of that injustice playing out even today. And as we look at a type of injustice, a different type of injustice this morning, uh, I want to remind us of of a few truths about God's word that guide us as City on a Hill. Uh, Number one is that the Bible is God's word. Um, It is authoritative and it is inerrant, meaning that we set ourselves under the authority of God's word. We don't come to God's word and change it. We don't come to God's word and just look for a little nugget that we get to carry into Monday morning. We come and submit ourselves to God's word to be changed by it. We also believe it's inerrant. We believe that God's spirit breathed out these words, every single word in the scripture. And according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3, that means that every word of the scripture is for our reproof, for our teaching, for our upbuilding. And so we remember those things as we engage his word this morning. The second thing is that the Bible is honest. Uh, The Bible is nothing but honest. If you've been with us through the book of Genesis, we have seen some pretty messed up people. Uh, Moses, who wrote this book years later, did not gloss over the flaws of his ancestors. Uh, There are some messed up people in this book. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it's honest because if we are honest, we're kind of messed up too. Um, We don't look a whole lot different than they did 4,000 years ago. And the third thing is, in particular to our subject this morning, is we don't skip hard passages. We don't skip difficult passages because it's easy. We don't skip difficult packages. We don't don't cherry pick. Um, We teach God's word as it comes to us. And as we do that, sometimes we come across a topic that is really, really difficult for us to put our heads around. And one of those topics, and this is maybe one of the most difficult topics, and one of the most difficult topics of injustice is the topic of sexual assault. Um, it's difficult for us to, to imagine. We don't really want to deal with it. We don't want to talk about it. It's, it's really uncomfortable, but we have to look at this and we have to look at it head on because we can't pretend this doesn't happen. What happened to Dinah in this passage is a pervasive problem in our culture. If you even just look at some of the statistics, over half of women and one in three men have had unwanted sexual contact of some kind. One in four women and one in 26 men reported being sexually assaulted or raped. And when you look at those numbers, this may be a personal experience for some even in our congregation. And so we want to enter into this morning with a lot of humility, with a lot of compassion, and a lot of conviction. Because what we're going to read this morning is devastating. It's devastating mentally. It's devastating physically. It's devastating emotionally. But also, we want to address this head on because we have a God who is not silent about injustice. We have a God who addresses injustice, and we see the same God who has comfort and compassion and gentleness for the vulnerable and the oppressed have a deep hatred for injustice. 
a deep hatred for when the vulnerable are oppressed. So much so that in Matthew 25, when Jesus was talking, he said that if you don't care for the thirsty or the hungry or the imprisoned or the vulnerable, it says something about your judgment, that you don't understand the gospel if the way you treat the vulnerable and the oppressed doesn't match the way that God treats them. It shows we don't understand his grace. But the second reason we know that God is not silent about injustice is that he rescues those in need. Psalm 12 tells us, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God hears those who call out to them and he rescues them. But God is also not silent about injustice because it's a proof for his existence. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want to talk about one little thing, just kind of slide one thing across the table, something for you to wrestle with and this big idea that we see across Scripture, especially if you consider yourself an atheist and say that the reason you don't believe in God is because of how much injustice you see in the world is this. If we are all just the random result of time and energy and matter, then nothing matters. Nothing is consequential. And this idea of justice, we shouldn't even engage with because if there is no God, there is no moral lawgiver, we have no ground to stand upon. And so a big argument for the existence of God is this deep desire that you and I feel for everything to be made right. C.S. Lewis, who was a lifelong atheist until he met Jesus in a miraculous way, said that his argument against God was that the world was so cruel and unjust But how had I got this idea of unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. God gives us the picture of what a straight line looks like and the justice to which we all long for. And so today, as we look at the story of Dinah, we're going to walk through the text. That's the reason we didn't have a scripture reading. And as we walk through the text, I'm going to give some observations, and then we're going to look at some principles about justice and how the gospel will make all things right. So to understand where we're at in chapter 34, we got to back up a couple verses into chapter 33. If you look at verse 18, it says, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloe Israel. Now, if you were with us last week, you saw Jacob and Esau's reunion after 20 years of being at odds with one another, 20 years of strife and conflict. They finally reconcile. There's forgiveness experience. Jacob has just wrestled with God and he's supposed to go back to the promised land after this long sojourning away. And he gets sort of delayed here, and he ends up right on the edge of the promised land. And as he gets delayed there, he settles in a little too closely to his pagan neighbors. He settles in, and if you, I don't know if you've ever lived somewhere for a little while, and you're like, I'm just going to live here for like six months until I get settled. And you look up like 10 years later, you're still there. That's what happened to Jacob. He settles into the city, he settles in and with his family, and we see some time has elapsed because as you look at Genesis 34, we believe, if you see the timeline, that Simeon and Levi, which would have been Dinah's brothers, would have likely have been in their 20s. Dinah likely would have been somewhere mid to late teens. So they've been there a long time. Then we see in verse 34, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, 
whom he had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. There's several curious things in this statement. Number one being that, um, number one being uh, that, that she's wandering about by herself. She's wandering about by herself in the land. And we know, we kind of wonder why. And one reason we're thinking maybe is that because it's Leah's daughter, not Rachel's daughter. You know, Jacob had a preference for Rachel over Leah. Maybe he's a little less attentive to her. And we see her wandering about, and I want to be very clear that she's done nothing wrong here. Not, you know, no woman can put herself in the wrong place. She's clearly a victim in this situation. She's simply going out to see the women of the land. She's going into the city. And we, then we see in verse 2, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, and this is very vivid, stark, almost like start-stop type language, he saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her, and he humiliated her. There's no other way to get around this, but Shechem raped Dinah. And we see a, a power dynamic here where the prince of the land is using his power in order to violate a young woman. And we see some really crazy language in verse three, where it says, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And you're thinking, man, how could this man who just violated this young woman say that he loved her? How could he then speak tenderly to her? And we can see from the text, this is clearly not godly sacrificial love. This is not the agape love that the New Testament describes of God's love for his people. How could he speak tenderly to her? And we imagine almost the language and, and the tone of an abuser who tells his spouse after hitting her, it'll never happen again. We see in verse four that he goes to his father. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, which by the way means donkey. I'll let you do with that what you will. And he says, get me this girl for my wife. Very possessive language. Get me this woman. I want you to notice Jacob's reaction in verse five. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah and his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And if you're reading this for the first time, you're, you're kind of taken aback by Jacob's response. He, he doesn't freak out. It says that he's simply holding his peace. Now, if you're trying to give Jacob the benefit of the doubt, you might think, okay, well, maybe Jacob is just trying to keep a cool head. Dinah's obviously devastated. He just wants to be a strong presence for her. He's waiting for the sons to get there. He's being wise and not jumping to anger quickly. But as the text unfolds, you begin to realize that it's not that at all. That he has now failed to care for his daughter, just like he failed to protect his daughter. And you're left with the question, why not fight for Dinah? And in verse six, we see incredulously, Hamor comes to Jacob looking to strike a deal. Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the brothers are coming in, they hear of this, and they are angry. Thankfully, somebody is angry in this situation. And they say in verse seven, the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. The words outrageous means deplorable. It means dehumanizing. That they had done something to their sister that all of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you consider yourself religious or not, there is something inside of your heart that tells you people aren't supposed to be treated like this. They're not supposed to be dehumanized. 
Verse eight, Hamor has the gall to speak to them. And he says, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Now, maybe Hamor thought they, have, they haven't heard about what happened. Maybe they just assumed that Shechem really just wants to marry Dinah. And then makes this offer in verse nine, make marriages with us, give your daughters to us and take your, our daughters for yourselves. Everybody can win here. You can get married and we can get married and I can get married and everybody gets married. Verse 10 says that we can dwell together. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. We're gonna be one big happy family. Forget that whole injustice thing that just occurred. And then Shechem speaks up and I'm really just surprised at the restraint of the brothers, not just giving him a right cross right there for even having the gall to speak. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Shechem resembles Proverbs 18, 13, which says, if one gives an answer before he hears it, it is his folly and shame. But I also love the way that the message pushed this. Answering before listening is both stupid and rude. And so... I like that translation a little better. He's so driven by his lust. He's so driven by his desire, by his twisted love that he would give anything to have Dinah as his wife. And we see that he's willing to give the bride price plus a gift. It's like being in a crowded housing market and going over the asking price. And then verse 13, we see that the brothers answer and you know that they've got to be boiling on the inside. And they hatch this plot to get revenge. Verse 13, the sons of uh, Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. They tackled this in reverse order. They said, the problem here is that you're not circumcised. We need to take care of that. And if you're not willing to do that, if you really want our daughters, you're gonna do this. But if not, then we are gonna go our own way. Verse 18, we see that Shechem and Hamor are just, as they're ready, it says that they're pleased with this situation. Verse 19, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house, which has to say something about how evil this city was. In verse 20, they go to the people and they lay their case out. In verse 21, it says, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it for behold, the land is large enough for them. They're saying, look, there, there's, no, there's really no objection here. I'm, I wanna disarm that. They're, they're friendly people. They're not a threat to us. They're not gonna hurt us. They're gonna live in harmony with us. The land is big enough. I want you to see the gain that could come from this arrangement. But he says in verse 22 that there is one little condition. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And then verse 23, we see Hemor's real intent. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? 
only to let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. We'll just overtake them with time. And in verse 24, they've painted this beautiful picture of how wonderful this is going to be. And we see that every male in the city was circumcised, meaning that every single one of them was complicit. Verses 25 through 29, we see the revenge uh, play out. It says, on the third day when they were sore, which it was believed to be that on the third day was when you would be the most sore. And I would imagine if Shechem and Hamor are not exactly you know, experienced in circumcising people, that it, it might not have been a great experience. I wouldn't line up first for that. Um, you, you see this really, this really almost just kind of, I don't know, it feels almost cruel. They're, they're sitting there, they're sore, they're, they're in pain. And they attack with incredible vengeance in verse 25. They took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. This became very personal. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And then we notice they go a step further and plunder the entire city. Verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. And in verse 30, we see this is where Jacob finally gets upset. Like, I mean, this is, I start to get kind of frustrated with Jacob at this point. The first time that Jacob gets mad is not when his daughter is raped, but when his reputation is soiled. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making the stink to the inhabitants, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And then you see the brother's response. They're, they are upset saying, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? There is no hero in this story. We get to the end of the story and it feels like there's, there's no happy ending in this story. Only people who misunderstand the justice of God. And so what I want to do is I want to look at four ways that are wrong to approach justice. And then I want to come back and talk about some principles for how we can. The first seems to be the most obvious is participate in it. We should not participate in unjust things. Shechem commits an incredible evil. There's no way to get around this. He has participated in an unjust act. But even the way that we treat other people, even if it's not to this extreme, we should not treat people in a way that treats them less than they are made in the image of God. Kevin DeYoung, talking about just the way that men should engage women in general, he says, godly men work in exactly the opposite direction of Shechem. We speak with words, we act out of love, we commit with vows, and then we become one with our bodies. Real men do not move in the opposite direction. We need to take a good, hard look at our lives and ask the question, are we living in a godly way or are there any areas where we're living in an unjust way? Am I treating others with the dignity and the respect that they deserve as people made in the image of God? And it's really easy for us to see it in the story we can look at a story and we can say rape is wrong. We can look at the story and say women feeling unsafe is wrong. But what about when you broaden this out to a more systemic issue? And think in particular to sexual assault, there's no greater driver of human trafficking than pornography. Pornography is the number one driver of human trafficking and is not a victimless act. 
get to think about the ways that women are devalued and objectified, broadening this out to other injustices. What other injustices might we be participating in? What sort of latent racism may be in our hearts? What about the way we treat the poor or the vulnerable? A second wrong way to approach justice is to profit from it. So maybe not being the one who actively does it, but seeing an opportunity to gain something from it. Hamor sees an opportunity and he says, what can I get out of this? Some don't want to address injustice because of what they might gain or what they might lose if it stops. When it comes to the issue of racism, what, what sacrifices might I be required to make in order to seek justice? Hamor knew that he could get something out of this if he played his cards right. Going back to the issue of pornography, the porn industry is a $97 billion industry worldwide. They wouldn't make it if people weren't watching it. People use others sexually because of unbridled sexual desire, and so others become a means to an end. Even beyond this, this, there's a reason that the Proverbs talk so much about the treatment of the poor. Proverbs 22 says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So those are two ways that we can actively be doing injustice. But the third way is to pursue vengeance on our own. So maybe you're actually trying to address injustice. And it seems obvious to not do injustice, but you can also go wrong in the way you address it. Simeon and Levi are furious, and they have every reason to be furious. They should want justice, but you notice that their moral outrage turns into bloodlust. And when injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. And they used the symbol of the covenant circumcision, which was meant to be a symbol of a relationship with God, and then used it to deceive and kill their neighbor. It'd be like offering to baptize someone and then drowning them. We can't pursue our version of justice at the expense of God's justice. Make no mistake, God wants justice. He will bring justice. And so when we have that sense in us that I have to do something, we need to ask the question, what am I being motivated by? Am I being motivated by fury and anger and hatred? Or am I being motivated by the love of God? And God being loving doesn't mean that he's a pushover. God fights for the little person. God sees the vulnerable. He cries out for the oppressed. He is fiercely protective of those who are helpless. He sees them. But notice how a desire for justice led them to injustice. You can become the very thing that you say you hate. God has to be the foundation of our justice, not just the consultant to our justice. And the last wrong approach is to be passive about it. The heartbreaking part of this for Dinah, beyond the offense itself, is that Jacob, her dad, doesn't seem to care. He doesn't comfort her. She's sexually assaulted, and he's not mad about it. He's not seeing red. He doesn't call out Shechem. He doesn't step up as a father. He doesn't stand up for his daughter. He does not care. Silence and inaction towards injustice is not just silence and inaction. It's injustice. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you need to go on Facebook and post about it. That's probably a bad idea these days. 
I'm not saying this needs to be the only topic you talk about. I'm not saying you need to obsess about it. What I, what I am saying, though, is that some of these things should bother you. These things should move you. When we hear that there's a sexual assault that happens every 68 seconds, it should move us. When we see disproportionate sentencing of our African-American neighbors and friends and incarceration, for every George Stenney and George Floyd and Emmett Till, it should do something in us. Every time we see a mass shooting, it should do something to us. When we see the treatment of the unborn, it should do something to us. We can't become numb to the things that grieve God and hurt our neighbors. So what do we do? I believe the Bible actually gives the best vision for justice. Every other vision that we could possibly look to is lacking. And I I want to give you a framework for justice for us as Christians. The first thing is to pursue holiness. To be holy means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be distinct. Jacob failed to set his family apart. And you see this in the life of his family, the choice that some of them made. And so we do, we do this, we, we pursue holiness by drawing close to God, by drawing close to him in his word, by drawing close to him in prayer, by being with him in silence and solitude and Sabbath. And what begins to happen is we become different people. There's something marked about people who spent time with God. They just come across different. When Moses came down off the mountain, his face was shining. We should look different. And what this means is you're not going to fit neatly into a little box. It means that our vision of justice is going to look different. It's going to be more holistic. It's going to be more wholehearted. It's going to be more hopeful. And what's going to happen is you're going to start to feel guilty about some things that you're doing or thinking or saying because you're running up against a holy God. And so some great questions we have to ask is, am I trying to please God or am I trying to fit into the culture's understanding of vision and flourishing? Am I moved by what moves God? Do do I want to be holy as God is holy? So we have to pursue holiness. But secondly, we need to do justice and love mercy God's way. Now, that last part is vital. Micah 6.8 has found this resurgence in the last 15 years as 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 a keystone verse for the church. But we tend to focus on one little part, do justice and love mercy. But here's what it actually says. He has told you, O man, what is good and what is what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness. And here's the last part we often miss, and to walk humbly with your God. We cannot rightly do justice and love mercy unless we walk humbly with him. We have to love what God loves and hate what God hates. What does God say about sex? What does God say about human dignity? What does God say about worth and value? And this begins to impact why and how we care and how we act. It helps us not become hopeless. It's easy to look at all the brokenness and injustice and suffering in the world and go to one of two extremes, that we either just give up and tuck our heads in the sand, or we go to the extreme of feeling like we just have to make everything right on our own. God is compassionate and just. The third thing is actively seek to change. Actively seek change. And this happens on the broader level, and this happens on the personal level. With God's justice as our framework, we can vote for better laws. 
We can look at policy change that leads to flourishing. We can get beyond our political bubbles and we can ask questions like what helps people? What protects the vulnerable? What punishes the unjust? And we can also look at our own hearts. What changes do we need to make? Men, but not just men. What do we need to do about our phones? What do we need to do about the porn problem? What do we need to do about putting a filter and getting an accountability partner? What do you need to do about confessing our sins? As a church, we've gone through a program called Caring Well, where we're looking at how to care well for abuse victims. Not just caring well, but also preventing abuse. And so we're committed to that as a church, that we want to be a church that cares well for those who've been hurt and also tries to put policies and procedures in place that tries to prevent hurt as best as we possibly can. And so we want to be a church that's a a safe place, but also as a place where you can reach out if you have been hurt. And the last one, and this is the most important one, is look to Jesus. Who seems to be missing after the first few verses of this passage? It's Dinah. She doesn't say anything. She's unseen. She's unheard. She's unheard from. But you know who hasn't forgotten her? Is God. Maybe this morning you have, this is personal for you. And maybe you feel unseen and you feel unheard and you feel voiceless and you feel, you feel broken. You know who sees you and who knows you and who wants you? God. Christianity is the most pro-woman religion in the world. And I can tell you this. Why? Because if you look at the Old Testament, you see law after law after law after law that was meant for the protection of women in a vicious world. And many of those same laws have found their way into our culture today. And then you look at the New Testament. The only person that Jesus called daughter was a woman who bled for 12 years who everybody else called unclean. Jesus dignified her and called her daughter. The first person to see Jesus risen from the dead was Mary Magdalene, who'd had a very checkered past. Jesus is the one who sees Dinah. He's the one who will bring justice for Dinah. Who's the helper for the woman who's been sexually assaulted? It's Jesus. Jesus, who gives us his unconditional love. And in fact, if you fast forward 2,000 years, Jesus meets another woman at a well in the city of Sychar. And if you know your history, that city used to be called the city of Shechem. Jacob had built a well there, and Jesus meets a Samaritan woman who the Jewish neighbors called Dog, who had been married five times and used and abused and left five times, who's now living with a man who is not even her husband. This descendant of Jacob, this descendant of Dinah, is treated by Jesus like Dinah should have been treated. And she sees Jesus, and she's changed by Jesus. And she runs off and she tells all of her neighbors, come and see this man who told me all I ever did. And that's hope for her because Jesus met her and valued her and healed her and sent her. That is the hope of the gospel is that Jesus meets you and he values you and he sees you and he heals you. Then he sends you to tell others about this good news. Jesus died to make all things right, to deal with every injustice. And when he died on the cross, he died for your guilt. He died for all the things that you've done wrong. But here's what he also died for. He died for your shame. And shame comes from things that have been done from you. If you are, to you, if you are bearing shame, Jesus wants to take it. 
Jesus wants to bear it. He bore it all the way to the cross. This morning, let's trust that Jesus is the righteousness of God who will make every injustice right. Let's pray.